and welcome to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 40 with James Waters, SVP of Products at Pivotal. Pivotal is probably best known for the success of Spring, the most popular way for developers to write Java applications, but they've built a great business around the Pivotal platform, which enables large businesses to manage a unified multi-cloud software infrastructure. Pivotal is a little different than your typical open source startup. Spun out of EMC and VMware in 2012, it IPO'd in 2018, and shortly before I recorded this episode in August of 2019, VMware announced a definitive agreement to acquire Pivotal, a combination that's expected to close in 2020. James makes the case that open source is winning because it's innovative, feature-rich, and enterprise-ready. He has a deep understanding of both the technical and business mechanics that make open source companies tick. I'm sure you'll enjoy this interview. So without further ado, here we go. James, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Ah, Great to be here, Mike. Hi. So you joined Pivotal in 2012 when it was formed. And for the listeners who don't know the backstory, maybe you could describe a little bit about how that came about and perhaps about how it's coming full circle to some extent. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to join a open source research and development team at VMware in 2010, working on an open source project named Cloud Foundry. And uh, we didn't really know what it would become as a business, and it ended up they decided to spin that out along with another open source project uh, called Spring Source or Spring into its own company. And that was one of the foundational product elements of the company called Pivotal. What's your current role with Pivotal? Yeah, so I've done a lot of product work at Pivotal. I'm currently our SCP of strategy focused on new parts of our product. So I've been focused on things like streaming, container as a service, function as a service, all the emerging areas of our product. Just to give everyone a sense of the scale, Could you give a rough estimate about how many product managers there are at Pivotal and the total size of the product team? Yeah, it's pretty expansive. So there's hundreds and hundreds of engineers that work on the platform at Pivotal. And uh, I would say uh, north of 50 full-time product people working in in support of them. So when when you were at Sun a while back, (laughs) you were product manager of Solaris which is a pretty epic assignment for for those of us geeks who revere Solaris. Since then, I'm wondering, could you comment about a little bit about like, how has being an open source product manager evolved? Like what's different now? That's a great question. The cycle time was so different on Solaris, right? And uh, that was uh, an 1100 person engineering team. And then on the kind of customer-facing product front, I think we were under 10 people. And so it was very much a engineering organization and product provided a bit of input and amplification of key customer themes. And we worked on a, you know, often multi-year release cycle. And uh, in, the, in, the, in the new world of open source, I mean, the community input comes so fast and uh, it's a different release cadence. So our core platform, PCF at Pivotal, we released every quarter. And that was a, a big mindset change for me versus sort of some of the older world at Sun was just how fast everyone expected you to respond. And it's not uncommon now to meet with a client and uh, 
in a matter of weeks, we will have a feature changer update shipped to them. So it's a, it's a completely much more iterative world of continuous delivery, both at the platform as well as what we're trying to inspire our customers to do for their end users. So I think that's dramatically changed things. So if you're not a son of VMware or Pivotal, but you're somewhat smaller, do you have any suggestions for some of the, the little things that you can do or that an open source company might do around product management? I think it's a really open-ended question, and I don't want to speak conclusively on it, but I think what I'd say is there's kind of two ways of coming at it. And my specialty has always been understanding the enterprise organization that the product fits into. And there was a point in our journey where we felt that adding additional features around security would probably be neutral to the developer audience that was using the platform but would actually bring like the chief security officer and her team deeper into the conversation. And suddenly we approached a few banks and we said, hey, what if we could rebuild this entire platform infrastructure you know, every day for security? And uh, we had a, a really brilliant product person at the time named Justin Smith who led this initiative to articulate the idea of the much more ephemeral approach to the platform. I think the reason I mention this is you could have gone deeper on just developer experience, but by finding that other constituent in an enterprise to come to the negotiating table around why we're giving money to this company, that really changed the game for us and a few clients because the chief security officer was now also an advocate. So I think it's challenging um, when you're doing open source products because you might get a lot of feedback from your immediate community and immediate users. But in order to sell the product to a large organization, you might think need to think about articulating investments to a broader set of constituents. You mentioned PCF or Pivotal Cloud Foundry. For those who don't know, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what that is or also walk us through some of the other product offerings at, at Pivotal. I've been fortunate enough Paul Moritz at VMware hired these a couple of Google engineers in 2009 and 10 to come build this platform out. And it was really like what you might call the cloud native platform world today. You know, at the time there was no such thing as container as a service and at the application level there really wasn't, you know, microservices and continuous delivery was sort of a very radical idea in enterprise. But it was sort of the first platform built with, you know, a container-first design, built to uh, enable continuous delivery of things that look more like microservices than monolithic applications, and kind of was the first investment in this cloud-native space in terms of application platform and culture all coming together in a platform. So that was really uh, what PCF did. And we were able to, you know, scale it from zero sales in 2012 or uh, when it was the spin-out was first contemplated to hundreds of millions of dollars in sales and ultimately the backbone of a public company. So cloud native is a broad horizontal market. Do you segment the market at all by vertical industry or use case? Yeah, this is another thing around product for me, product strategy, is that I do think that vertical use cases are critical. I'll give you two examples. In the banking world, there is a huge focus on Java because it's traditionally a Java-centric custom application world. Banks were always willing to invest in the high-end applications that often was built by Java developers when that first started. And to this day, banks are, 
I would say the number one language in banking is Java. They're very security centric. So they operate in a highly regulated world and they tend to be very hybrid cloud. There's very few banks that run public only. And so they were a tremendous fit for the design of PCF. Uh, both from its support for Spring Boot, as well as its core security differentiation. So we absolutely thought of a lot about you know banking, insurance, regulated industries. And then manufacturing was, uh, you know, and industrial was a little bit different space. So there you had a lot of the IoT world, you had streaming data, you had uh, a completely learning how to build software th- for the first time way of engaging where the industrial companies were just getting started on major software investments. So I, I definitely think about uh, vertical segmentation. And I think for anyone who's contemplating a, a sort of customer-first approach to product thinking, vertical segmentation is a good early model to take on. So Pivotal has 73 projects in GitHub, and I'm sure that there's many more in private repositories. How do you decide which projects to open source? I think by and large, we we tend to be an open first style company. As I mentioned on the Andreessen Horowitz podcast a while back, I am an advocate for sometimes keeping the, the UI closed source can be a, a simple way of differentiating between the pure community efforts and the final enterprise products. But in general, we've tilted towards open source first. And uh, that's also been a key part of our relationships, like I mentioned, uh, with certain banks. You know, a lot of the core security infrastructure of the platform was all kept open source because the banks felt more comfortable uh, consuming a platform that was open first, even in those core areas. When you have a lot of projects, is it difficult to position the value proposition of the company? That's a great question. I mean, if you think about... You know, how many projects you want to take on, like say MongoDB is a fairly focused company, you know, one core thing, Elastic, a fairly focused company. But you get into the platform world, companies like HashiCorp are very successful at doing multiple projects. I think Pivotal is probably one of the broader breadth open source companies out there. Uh, Certainly Red Hat has a pretty broad breadth. You hit a point where you become the platform provider of choice for their next generation of design. And actually the pressure comes to do more and more and more. One of the biggest pressure points for us was always like, okay, we love this as an application platform. Now provide us the whole universe of data services on the platform. And so you have to achieve a certain critical mass to, to have the scale to, to invest like that. But I do think that in enterprise segmentation, it's powerful when you can start to have people accept the offerings you do have and then the biggest pressure is, and now add this so I can have one coherent approach. And I think that that's something that's really important for open source companies to think about. Like, if you look at how Amazon operates, they are not a federation of hundreds of little hosting providers all coming together. They, they really have that sort of single point of interface to all of their abstractions. So I, I think that's an interesting dynamic in the world right now of open source is like how broad you should go in your portfolio. Do enterprise buyers favor that? Is it better to be lower-end, single product? That's something we discuss. With a lot of products, containers, cloud-native services, it seems like it's harder than ever to figure out how do you price. There's more things you could gate on and more. The elasticity is given, I know us at my company, Glue, a lot of challenges because, well, per CPU, that depends upon the time of day. Can you talk about the evolution of pricing? 
And did you get it right initially, or did you have to make some tactical adjustments along the way? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great question. I think it's never easy or straightforward. We made a decision that we were going to go after the largest thousand companies in the world predominantly, and that we were going to supply a lot of technical resources to them to ensure that they were successful with our product and very much be an outcomes-focused company. So I think we tended to price at the higher end of the market, and uh, that was a very deliberate uh, choice. And I think as we're growing now, we're seeing more opportunity to start to segment the offer to have a more transactional approach. We introduced a container-as-a-service product that didn't have as many features as the full platform, but was something that people were, were ready to pay for on a more transactional basis. So I, I think that there is this tension between the desire to have a broader platform versus to be more transactional. And that very much comes back to customer segmentation. And so I would think of pricing in terms of how transactional you want to be, and then what the customer really expects out of you to make them successful. Like what does customer success really look like has to be at the core of your pricing model. If you price it really low and they're not successful, like that's, that's actually not in either of your interests. Does Pivotal actually have competitors? Yeah, I don't think that Pivotal has a, a company that is assembled just like us. And we have some unique assets. Like, you know, uh, one of the reasons we are successful in enterprises is we have the number one way that enterprises build apps in the Spring Boot. So when it, when it comes to like how enterprises are building applications, I'd say Spring Boot is probably easily the number one and might be, you know, over 50% market share of, you know, net new enterprise applications today. So there's not another company that has that. We also had a very, big gift and that we were owned by, you know, kind of the Dell VMware family of companies ultimately. And so we've always been able to go to market with them, but we really still did have to earn our own way, but we could get introductions. So I think all of those things came together in a way that allowed us to build a higher end platform to focus on the top thousand companies in the world and to, to go make them successful and to price and package accordingly. I think one of the, maybe I'd get your opinion on this. I think one of the challenges right now for smaller open source companies is these cloud platforms and open source, they keep adding features at a pretty high rate. And so you may think that one day you have a company and the next day that's a feature of a cloud platform. And I think that's a tension. Certainly in the service mesh world, I, you see disruption of kind of traditional networking and API management coming in the way that people are adopting, uh, you know, uh, service meshes, et cetera. So is, is that a company? Is that a platform? I think that's a very dynamic uh, part of the market right now. It's pretty important, and I don't talk about it too much, but I really do enjoy working on open source projects because they can have a breadth of impact that's pretty unimaginable to something that you have to commit a sales transaction and for software before someone can use it. We have an asset at Pivotal, Spring Starters. And they're the number one way that people get started with a new Java application. And there's a site, start.spring.io, right? You start a new Java project there. Every two seconds, a developer on average is going there to kick off a new project. And uh, the top three countries for it are China, United States, and India. But these are the kind of impacts that open source can have worldwide, deep into developer, developer impact that you could never do with a you know closed source only enterprise sale only product. So I think just the unimaginable breadth that open source can get to and the ubiquity that it can get to in the modern world is 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 stunning. 
so that's humbling to work on. I think the challenge then is like, well, how do you make sure that the largest, you know, 5,000 organizations in the world are contributing to that? And that's where I do have a passion for enterprise monetization of open source and finding ways of partnering with those organizations and packaging and pricing things such that they feel that there's good value in partnering with these open source companies and making them their most meaningful platform. So I think I kind of have two minds there. Number one, open source is super important just from a long-term impact to the world. There's hard to work on projects that can have a bigger one than open source ones. And then there is the challenge of like, well, then how do you build the economic model around that when it's so ubiquitous to begin with? So that's the, those are the kind of challenges I like taking on. And I'm humbled to be able to work on open source for enterprises for that reason. Do you think that certain types of software lend themselves to being open source? I would say that, you know, the developer workflow today, you know, someone that's not my line, but I like it, it's, it starts with Git clone. And I think anything where a developer is initiating a project in this, in this era, it better be either a really easy to use API, and I think Stripe certainly has proven that, or it better be something like start.spring.io or Git clone, something that a developer can just go grab in a permissionless kind of way. And Adrian Cocroft at Netflix said that, you know, Back when he was at previous companies, it would be these big architectural debates for months before a project would start. And that at Netflix, he really implemented the running code talks. It's all about you know running code. So I think that that is the reason why open source is really powerful for anything having to do with developers. And then on the infrastructure level, open source has become the most profound way that large vendors collaborate. Like if you look at what's happening in the Kubernetes community, where you have every you know, major public cloud contributing to Kubernetes. You have VMware acquiring Heptio to make major contributions to Kubernetes. In infrastructure, open source is the way that these, what you might have had standards bodies before, there's sort of like a running code way that you know, the large vendors are collaborating. So I think both in the end user developer space as well in the infrastructure space, open source has had a huge impacts. But I do think those worlds are slightly different. Like the dynamics of, start.spring.io, which is very, you know, end developer focused versus the way that every public cloud is normalizing how they run Kubernetes are slightly different. So uh, they're all open source, but they have slightly different behaviors and attributes. And it's kind of fascinating to see database companies like MongoDB or, you know, a little bit different than, than the, the way that the Kubernetes community is operating. Do you think that customers actually care about open source? I mean, large enterprise customers. I think large enterprise customers absolutely have seen the tremendous benefits in just, frankly, the innovation velocity of open source products. And I think this is the biggest change is that, you know, in the early days, open source was a cheaper version available for free of the enterprise product. And that's when I think it was especially hard to monetize. Like if you're just going to be the cheaper thing and the low cost provider of and not the premium product, a lot of enterprises might look at that and say like, hey, you know, we're an enterprise. We can afford to buy whatever we need. We just really want innovation leverage. Like we want the best product. But I think there's a new whole category of products where there's only an open source player that is creating it. Like PCF was the kind of first microservices platform in the world for enterprises. And it was built 100% open source. So it was both the market leader in terms of features, 
and the open play. And so I think the open source market has changed where there is room to be both innovative or the expectation is that you're both innovative, higher end, uh, feature rich, as well as you know enterprise ready. All of that is expected from open source today. I think that's where the innovation is happening. I mean, if you look, here's an example. Amazon has a service Kinesis, which is how they were doing messaging and you know, data pipelines. And now they've switched that to a managed Kafka service. They had to do that because the innovation was really happening in the Kafka community and open source. Even at Amazon scale, they couldn't keep up with it. So I, I really find that to be the best part of the market right now is that you can't out-innovate the open source plays. So it seems like there's sort of a cyclicality between centralization and decentralization. So for example, like I'd say a couple of years ago, everyone was in full tilt towards go to the cloud. And now it's almost like with Kubernetes and other technologies, is there any shift away towards maybe bringing more of this type of functionality in-house? And does that help a company like Pivotal? Yeah, when I talk to CIOs about this, I, I try to help them deconstruct the, the current cloud market. And I, what I tell them is that you know, public cloud is not one thing. It's really three different zones of features that you need to think about. The first is the commodity layer, which is, hey, I'm just buying virtual machines, networking, disk, the basics. And that's kind of where public cloud started. There, you can use a platform like Kubernetes and run those system resources in similar ways, if not identical ways, across public, private, hybrid, multi-cloud, etc. So I think Kubernetes has done a tremendous job of making those systems resources normalized across all of the clouds. Then I think there is this emerging space within the cloud-native community around you know, the open-source developer-focused projects that run on Kubernetes, like Kafka, like Spring Boot, really like Pivotal's platform. That's where the developer innovation is coming. So you might call that, that's like the open developer innovation community. That's number two. And then number three, there selectively are these managed services like Google Spanner, Google Machine Learning, where you might be ahead of the market, where there might not be an open play there yet, where, you know, Spanner requires dedicated, you know, fiber networks between data centers to make the database magic work. So there are areas where the managed cloud are ahead. So our perspective is that the innovation in the core, where you're really arming your developers, continues to happen in open source. Commoditization can be achieved through technologies like Kubernetes running in a normalized way across clouds. And then, you know, technologies like the open service broker allow you to buy into these managed things. So long story short, I think what's happening is that CIOs are getting smarter about deconstructing cloud from this monolithic idea of I go all in on one cloud to like, how do I selectively use what's best about each cloud? And I think open source is playing a huge part in that. You touched on this a little bit before about how open source software maybe should be cheaper. And I think that there is this sort of perception for some reason that even though you get more rights with the license, that the software should be less money. Do you think that that is changing or is that something that as an industry we need to work on with customers? I'm maybe a contrarian here. You know, my dream was always a very open product that generated a lot of value that enterprises were excited to invest in the platform partnership in. And essentially, I don't think that open source should have to have cut rates levels of investing investment into research and development versus closed source. So my contrarian nature there is says, 
if you really have the right relationships with these customers, they're going to be just as happy giving an open source provider money as they are giving Oracle money. I mean, if anything, I think that open source uh, partnerships are valued in a more profound way in the modern enterprise. They might be even happier to give you more money than Oracle. So I do think that that's something that's happening. And that also comes back to just how these open source companies engage with these large enterprises. Are they focused on them? Do they understand their vertical needs? Do they put security first? Are they able to measure the outcomes that are achieved with their platforms? Last question. So do you have any advice for entrepreneurs who are starting new ventures based on open source software? I think my advice would be if you really develop a community around your open source, you're one of the luckiest people in the world. That's a tremendous gift. And, uh, you know, savor and invest in that community, but also spend some time understanding how that technology fits into the value chain in the largest thousand companies in the world and the investments they're making in technology. And try to balance the needs of the developer who's, you know, approaching it from a get clone, let's get started perspective, as well as the, the more complex matrix or matrices of a large enterprise organization and what they need across security, operating certainty, SLAs, et cetera. And if you can get those two forces right, then I think you've got a, a, a remarkable opportunity. But I, I do think that monetization and ultimately funding a great R&D team behind your open source project takes a, a balanced eye towards both. James, um, thank you so much for taking your time today in this really pivotal moment and pivotal's trajectory. <laughs> One last pivotal word joke. Thanks, James. Thank you, Mike. And thanks to the Pivotal team for making this happen. Transcription and episode audio can be found on opensourceunderdogs.com. Music from Broke for Free and Chris Zabriskie. Audio editing by Inez Satenji. Production assistance by Natalie Lau. Operational support from William Lau. Transcription by Marina Andrzejkovic. The Twitter handle is at FOSS Podcast. That's F-O-S-S Podcast. Next week, we have Jeff Schmidt, co-founder and CEO of Apollo GraphQL. Until then, thanks for listening.